morning, church. So glad that you're here this morning with us. And uh, here at Oakwood, we just want to continue to grow in the Lord together, right? As we are growing more and more every week as a church family and as believers to know and love and live Jesus out. And so we're so glad that you're a part of that with us this morning. Something that, that Corey just talked about a second ago that I just also wanted to highlight because it's the first time we've, we've ever done something like this. Um, the, the dinner for those uh, that are part of the grief care ministry or even if you're not a part of our grief care ministry uh, that meets on the first and third Tuesday nights of each and every month, um, that dinner next Sunday is designed to be um, a help for the holidays. We know the holiday season's coming up. For some of you, that means a lot of firsts uh, or maybe second time through Thanksgiving and Christmas. What does that look like? And so uh, it's really focused on offering hope on how do you navigate that. And uh, we would love for you to be there. Anyone is invited to uh, be at this dinner next week. Anyone that's lost a loved one, whether it was your parents or grandparents or a spouse, uh, we invite you to be a part of that. It's going to be a real special time where we get to minister uh, to one another next week. Um, and so there's, there's, again, more information on that. We would love to have you uh, join us for that. Sometimes as we go through life, we, get our, we find ourselves in situations where we are made, like, super uncomfortable. A lot of times, I think it's in regards to when we have conflict. Have you ever walked in on a conflict? You, you didn't really know what was going on, but you knew it was tense. It's very, very awkward to walk in on the conflict. I, I know I've done this uh, for uh, people sometimes when they're like at work and there's something going on at the job and maybe you're in a store or something and you can tell this manager's on the walkie-talkie you know, and they're talking to this one. This one's mad. There's a small group over there that's, uh, you know, man, I cannot believe. Yeah, did you hear what she did? Well, I blah, blah. And I don't even know. Well, she didn't even cover her shift. And da, 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 you, know, you walk into this and you're just a customer. All you're trying to do is buy a sweater, right? Ugly Christmas sweater season. So trying to find the ugly Christmas sweater, and you're just looking around, you're like, man, I am uncomfortable. By the way, they're, they're, you know, it's conflict. Maybe for some of you it's Thanksgiving, right? You get the whole family together for Thanksgiving. And when you get the whole family together for Thanksgiving and you remember that Uncle, Uncle Fred and Uncle Barney did not get along, right? Uncle Fred and Uncle Barney do not get along. And so they, you know, their, fam their kids that are the cousins, they don't even talk to each other. They don't even look at each other anymore. It's so contentious. And you're just uncomfortable because of the conflict. And whether it's at work or whether it's in a family or on a job or maybe on a soccer field or on a football field or wherever it is, it makes us uncomfortable because we would like to live in peace. We would like to live in harmony. We would like to go shopping and not have the workers hating on each other. We'd like to see them working together, right, and offering excellent customer service because there's this sense of harmony there. If you don't have that in your family, I know for a fact that you want that in your family. You want to have this harmonious family life, and when everyone gets together, it actually is joyful because people are getting along. It's interesting because as we've been in this series, and we're, we're, this is the last installment today, um, as we've been talking about the church defined, how do, we, how do we operate a church God's way? And as the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus and, and to these new uh, churches that were just growing and doing great things for the kingdom of God, he ends the letter with this, this theme, if you will, of being a harmonious church. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And we're going to look at the rest of the book today, verses 9 through 15. We'll end the book and end this series. 
Titus chapter 3. As always, you're invited to follow along in, in the app, whether you have that on a tablet or a phone. A follow along in the app. All the scriptures are there for you as well as all the bullet points. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, how does our Heavenly Father, you know, so many times we think about how we feel about things. How does God feel? How does our Heavenly Father feel about this topic of unity and getting along and living at peace and having harmony, especially within his church, within his family? How does God feel about those things? Because I really think it thrills him when he has a church and a church family that is harmonious and that represents him well to the world through the peace and harmony and love that they show for one another. And I think sometimes it grieves his heart when churches have contentiousness inside and, and have this fighting or this back and forth. Let's read the text today and, and see what God has to say to us on this. Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, says this. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Just, you know, discussions and back and forth about who's related to who and who's better than who. And arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So what is this text saying to us this morning as we conclude this series? The first thing is this. We need to avoid foolish controversy. Avoid foolish controversy. What does it say there in verse 9? But avoid foolish controversies. controversies. And what else? And genealogies. And what else? And arguments. And what else? And quarrels about the law. Like, leave these things behind. Avoid these things. Now, I want to say this up front. Not all controversy is foolish. But a lot of times it is, if you get down to the core and the root of the issue. But there are some issues that are critical for us to consider. They need to be discussed. They need to have a conversation, even if it makes you uncomfortable. But then, there's, there's several reasons that we should avoid these foolish Controversies. He says there at the end of verse 9, because these are unprofitable and useless. So the reasons to avoid these controversies is that they accomplish nothing. They accomplish nothing. In 1917, the Russian Revolution was rocking the streets of Petrograd in Russia. And it's a sad part of the story, but the Russian Orthodox Church, while it was going on in the square there in the town and this Russian revolution about, you know, I mean, it was going back to human rights and the, and the country and governance and all of these important things, the church was meeting just five blocks away, and the Russian Orthodox Church, records in history, was in a very steamy, hot deba debate over the color of the robes that the leaders should wear. 
missed opportunity, right? While God's church is debating the color of the robes, which God probably didn't care. Okay? Here was a need that the church could have met. And this is a reason to avoid the foolish controversies of colors of robes or colors of carpets or what's allowed in the church lobby or whatever else that it is. They accomplish nothing. The second reason is because they are potentially divisive. They're potentially divisive. Notice it says there, arguments and quarrels. Arguments and quarrels. If you look up the, the uh, word argument there, it means strife. It's translated as strife in other parts of the New Testament. And it's alluding to the fact that it is a bitter conflict and discord. You see, sometimes we have this, this ability to lose perspective. And we start wanting to defend our position or our feelings so much that we become foolish about controversies and opinions and we decide to stick our heels in and we're just going to stand our ground. But sometimes it's in the heat of those debates that it causes division, which I think is sad for God's church. Sam Stone was the editor of the Christian Standard magazine for about 30 years one time he was doing a cover article on churches and in small towns and he went to a small town in Ohio where there were two Christian churches the town wasn't very large just a handful you know, a couple hundred people and there were two Christian churches and both churches were running about 40 to 45 people he thought this is really interesting and so he went into the local diner to get a cup of coffee and he he sat down at the diner and he was talking to the locals and he's like hey there's just I know there's two Christian churches here there's there's this Christian church and that Christian church and you know I was just wondering you know why are there two Christian churches in in town one of the ladies there will said well I, I know I know all of it I've been in th these churches for a long time yep there used to be one Christian church but then we split oh that goes all over me when a church splits what you know, Sam Stone was interviewing. It's like, you know, what, what, what was it? Was it, you know, was it this kind of issue? I mean, was it, was it a doctrinal matter? And, you know, was it something, you know, the scripture said it was, you know, something that theologically we need to stand firm. She goes, oh, yes, it was. And he said, well, what, what was the, the theological issue? She said, that other, that other church, that other group, they were wanting to spend tithe dollars on a fellowship dinner. We'd had it. So we let it go. On a fellowship dinner, tithe dollars on a fellowship dinner is what split a church. Sam Stone was beside himself. But I think we've all heard about church splits and divisions and small groups that leave and different things like that over the most trivial things. And maybe some of you have been a part of that. Or maybe you've just heard about it somewhere else. But I believe it is the devil's playground to get churches to fight and to be against each other and to be divisive in nature. That's why we avoid foolish controversy because it is potentially divisive to the body of Christ. And notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say pray about it. He doesn't say have conversations about it. He doesn't say have a congregational meeting about it. He says avoid it. Avoid it. So what does that mean? What are some ways that we could avoid foolish controversies? Really simply change the subject. Sometimes the subject matter is so negative and so trivial, you just need to change the subject to something good. I always say, change the conversation to something that actually matters. Change the conversation to something that actually matters. The second thing that you can do to avoid foolish controversy is avoid bringing it up. 
yourself. Why every time you encounter different people in the church do you feel like, oh, I've got to bring up the same thing? If the positions haven't changed and you know what the positions are, then why bring it up again? The third thing that you can do is you can just walk away. Leave the conversation. Walk away. Kenny Rogers, the great theologian, wrote a great theological song called The Gambler. And in The Gambler, he says you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Well, walk away, folks. And by the way, Kenny Rogers wasn't that theological. (laughs) If necessary, avoid the person altogether. You know, it does say in the text to have nothing to do with a person that is potentially divisive. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it reminds us, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So be careful the company that you hold. So we need to avoid the foolish controversy, to keep the harmony in God's church. And the second thing we need to do is we need to confront divisive people when it's necessary. Okay? Confront divisive people when it's necessary. Look what it says there in verses 10 and 11. Very interesting. When I read it, I read it twice because I was like, is it really saying this? It says, warn a divisive person once. Then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self Condemned. I thought, wow, those are some strong words there when you call someone warped and sinful. Can you imagine that? Hey, you are warped and sinful. (laughs) It's just not, you know, it seems like really, really strong language. But folks, why is there such strong language in this text? It's because this matters to the Lord. And he knows that when a church is constantly fighting, constantly having controversy, and constantly having confrontations and division amongst its people, it negates evangelism. It's harder to win people to Christ because the people out in the world go, huh, they act like all the employees at such and such company. Huh, they're just like everyone else in the world. There's no difference with Christians. They claim to know Christ, but by their actions, they deny him. Titus 1.16, if I can. Romans 12.18 says this, If it is possible, if it is possible, and as far as it depends on you, not the offending party, not the other opinion, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, and as far as it depends on you. Well, they keep talking and posting that garbage on social media. As far as it depends on you. Well, they keep saying, well, when we come together, we still, I mean, they're still as far as it depends on you. You can't control them, but you can control yourself with the help of God. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's also interesting what happens in Galatians chapter 2. I don't know if you've ever read that or studied that. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. Remember who wrote Galatians, the Apostle Paul. Same guy that wrote this letter to Titus that we've been studying the last several weeks. In Galatians 2.11 it says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Whoa, wait a minute here. I opposed him to his face. That's some strong words from Paul. 
And you may say, what's the context here? The context was they were in this debate that we encountered in the, book, in the middle of the book of Acts as well about Jewish customs versus Gentiles. And do Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians? Or do they just accept Christ and become Christians? Or do they have to be circumcised and become Jews and start keeping the law and then become Christians? So there was all this controversy here. And Paul knew exactly where he was at on the matter because he was in a unique position. He used to be a part of the Sanhedrin. He used to be a Pharisee. He was born of Jewish descent, but was a Roman citizen. So he had Gentile citizenship and yet Jewish roots. And so he's in this very interesting place to debate these things. And the Apostle Paul was so passionate, says that he got in Peter's face about it. Confront division. As much as it is possible, and as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. But there are times where it says in verse 10, to warn a divisive person. Paul says to confront this divisive person, not because they disagree with you, but because, listen to this, but because they are threatening the harmony of the church, usually in two ways, either by not submitting to the word of God, by going against what scripture says, or by not submitting to the church leaders. And in doing so, they push against people they cause division and factions, and, and whether it's causing division or just potential division in the future, we are called to confront those things. Many times, a divisive person just has an opinion, and they just want everyone to know it. They're just selfish in their ambitions and their intentions, and they have no concern really for spiritual truth or the unity or the harmony of God's people. In Proverbs chapter 6, Verses 16 through 19, it gives us a list of the things that the Lord hates. And the very last one at the end of verse 19 says the Lord hates this, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Some translations say it this way, a person who stirs up conflict and dissension amongst the brothers. You see, God takes this very seriously. There's really three types of divisive people that we're dealing with. The first one is the false teacher. The false teacher. Uh, do you remember where we began several weeks ago in, in, in Titus chapter 1? In verse 11, it said this about false teachers, that they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. If false teachers weren't confronted early, they might win a hearing from some people in God's church and they will distort the truth and divide the congregation over time. Folks, it causes all kinds of issues and that's why it has to be confronted. A divisive person has to be confronted. Sometimes that is a false teacher. It's someone who is just not teaching the truth of God to people. The, the, the second type of, of divisive uh, people is the immoral example. The immoral example. Sometimes people flagrantly flaunt their immoral behavior. And it becomes a point of division in the body of Christ because it sends mixed signals, especially to younger Christians, about what it means to be committed to Christ Jesus. That the longer that you're a Christian, the less you should sin. The longer you're a Christian, the more you should be holy and righteous. Because Jesus is what? He's rubbing off on you. He's redeemed you, but he's sanctifying you, regenerating you. And it says in Corinthians that we are a new creation. 
that you are made new in Christ Jesus. Sometimes those immoral examples can cause division in the churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it actually deals with this directly. And again, it's the Apostle Paul. He chastises the leaders in the Corinthian church there in 1 Corinthians 5 for not confronting a man who is sexually immoral. And then he added in verse 6 there, don't you know that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Do you understand what Paul's saying there? If this little bit of sinfulness makes its way into the body and everyone begins to accept the sinfulness, everyone begins to tolerate the sinfulness, it has a way of working its way through the entire body. When people in a church family are looking at the example that believers are putting forth and they see something that's egregiously a sin against God and it seems to just be accepted and tolerated by the church, it's not confronted It just seems to be, oh, well, that's fine. That's okay. It's accepted here. It sends the wrong message. And if you tolerate it, and over time we have a tendency to do that, sin has a way of training people to tolerate it over time. It might just take a little bit of time, but the more you see it, the more that you're around it, the more that you are accepting of it, the more you will tolerate it. And so we have the false teacher, we have the immoral immoral example, and the third type of divisive person is the contentious spirit. Now when I say contentious spirit, I know some of you are like, oh yeah, it's the person with the really loud mouth, right, and they're going around yelling and talking, but no, I'm telling you what, those are not the most dangerous contentious spirits. I find it's the, the quieter ones that are always just a little flippant comment here under their breath and a little flippant comment there. They're more subtle, and I think because they're more subtle, they have a tendency to be more dangerous to the body. Sometimes they're really brave and they'll write an anonymous letter. Sometimes it's an anonymous prayer request card, and it's not really a prayer request at all. Just wanting to beat up on someone. And it's in this subtlety that division begins to be stirred because they might share their comment or their opinion here or there. It's a little bit of gossip, a little bit of slander, which we talked about last week and five weeks ago, a little bit of criticism. And then all of a sudden you find out that this person is finding fault with everything they can possibly find fault with. There's these subtle attempts at Christian blackmail. Hey, if you don't do the way things, you know, if you don't do things in the church the way I want them done, if you don't have my this or my that, if you don't position it here, if you don't do this, and we, we get all worked up over, the, over some of the silliest things. But if you don't do that, I'm going to pull my support, I'm going to quit tithing to the Lord, I'm going to quit attending, and I'm going to take all my friends with me. Sometimes the contentious spirit also can divide through hypersensitivity. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes people get hurt. Sometimes people hurt people, and sometimes that even happens in God's church. A lot of times people don't even know that they've hurt someone. But yeah, that that conversation didn't go the way I wanted, or I didn't get my needs met when I was in my time of need. You know, this person wasn't there for me like I thought they were. I thought they were a good friend, and they're not. And they grow in this contentiousness about how they've been hurt, and they want to make sure that everyone knows it so that everyone will walk on eggshells around them and try to cater to their wants, their needs, their desires, or their opinions. 
And sometimes I think it's amazing at how much damage can be done to the unity, camaraderie, and harmony of a church by someone who seems quiet and unassuming, but they'll regularly hold all of the people hostage by the threat of a long-term pout. And there's no place for that in the body of Christ. And if I read the scripture rightly today, it doesn't say to pity that person. It doesn't say to feel sorry for them. It even doesn't say pray for them, though we should. It says give them a warning and warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. So what does scripture call us to do when we confront? How do we confront a divisive person? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, gives us this pattern for confronting people, and it includes how to protect against division in the church. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. I want to share with you verses 15 through 17. These are the words of Jesus. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Wait, wait. The Bible says do not judge. Wait, it's not judging. You're just pointing out their fault. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. A lot of us skip this step because we start talking to everybody else about it. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Great. But if they will not listen to you, then take one or two others along so that, this is quoting scripture, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, hey, well, that's just your opinion on what I'm doing. No, 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 there's a couple of other, there's a couple other mature Christian brothers and sisters here that are also concerned about what you are doing and what you are saying right now. If they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. It's talking about bringing that to church leaders. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, they're not a part of this fellowship. In Titus 3, 10 through 11, that's exactly what it's, what it's doing. Now, what it's saying. Now, we have to, to frame this up. What is the goal of a confrontation, a biblical confrontation like it outlines in Matthew 18? The goal is repentance and restoration. Don't ever lose sight of that, folks. The goal is that someone would own their stuff and say, you know what? You're right. (laughs) Man, I feel really bad right now. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I will not not do that again. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to go make right my wrongs here. And and then the Bible says they're immediately to be restored to the fellowship of the believers. I mean, that's how this is to work. One-on-one first. So many people skip that step. I have many people that come to me with problems with, that they have with someone in our church or someone in their own family or something like that. And I always say, did you go and talk to them? And about 80 to 90% of the time, the answer is no. Well, that's where you have to start. You would be amazed at how much conflict can be put to rest by just doing the first step of Matthew 18. One-on-one, heart-to-heart, eyeball-to-eyeball, brother to brother, sister to sister, or brother to sister, to sit down and talk. Because when you understand each other, man, it's amazing what God can work out. And so we need to do this. The goal of these confrontations is repentance and restoration. And here are the steps just outlined for how do we deal with disharmony, divisiveness in the church. The first one is the personal confrontation, okay? 
Don't come to the ministers. Don't come to the church leaders about it unless you have talked to them first. You've tried yourself just to go and to resolve, to resolve the issue. The next step is to take two or three witnesses. This is for added credibility. These people have also seen this behavior, seen this sin, or are akin to this belief as well. You just say, well, what's the deal with that? Well, it's to lend credibility, but I think there's also power in numbers. Maybe if one-on-one didn't work, we'll gang up on you. Three-on-one. We'll see if we can get you to repent then, right? Then it says to discuss the problem with church leaders. Discuss the problem with church leaders. And then the next is the church leaders should warn the divisive person. Now, this is taking it to a more serious level. So just imagine this. Okay, you're having some conflict with someone. You've caught, you're caught in the sin pattern in your life. Someone confronts you. You're like in denial. Oh, you're just sensitive or you don't really care. I don't like you. They bring a couple friends with them. Man, we're really concerned about you here. No, 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 no. How does it feel on Sunday morning in the lobby after church when a couple of our elders walk up and say, can you meet with us today at 2 o'clock? Do you see how it feels like a little more serious then? Now, I want to tell you that if the elders say they want to meet with you today at 2 o'clock, it might be because they want to pray for you, um, because they know what's going on in your life. Don't think that's always church discipline happening. Please don't, okay? <laughs> They're going to be really mad at me, okay? No, most of, the time, most of the time they want to meet with you to pray, to support you, to speak encouraging words to you. It's not to confront you, but the Bible says we are to confront a divisive person. If you're sowing division within the body of Christ, it is our duty as church leaders to confront that boldly, to protect the mission and the purity and the camaraderie and the harmony of God's church. Division and harmony so many times hurts the church and it negates the evangelism and the power of the testimony that God's people can have together. I believe, I really believe this, that God blesses harmonious churches. And I doubt that if I were God, I would ever bless a church that is constantly bickering about things that don't really matter. Foolish controversies that tend to divide the body of Christ. Last thing this morning from our text, in verses 12 through 15, we need to practice servanthood at every opportunity. Practice servanthood at every opportunity. Look what it says there in in 12 through 15, but especially in verse 14. It says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. We, we talked about that last week, right? Do the right thing. Do what is good. In the context here, he's talking about providing for the needs of these, these teachers and these traveling evangelists that are going to come through their area. He's like, hey, Christians, take care of them. Do the next right thing. Do the next good thing. And watch how God uses that. You see, the best way to maintain harmony in the church is to get the church congregants to think more about others than they do themselves to help each other, and to have a heart for others above yourself. That may include your opinions, your desires, and your preferences. Would you be willing to give up your preferences for the gospel? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Do nothing, nothing, do nothing, nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather... In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests and your own preferences and the way I like things, the way I like things set up, the way I like things, but each of you to the interests of 
the others. Because you know what? I can't think of a time in my life where I met a contentious servant. And you see, when people devote themselves to service and to doing what is good, I think we have this tendency to look a lot more like Christ Jesus. It's interesting. If you read the Upper Room Discourses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all have discourses on what happens in the Upper Room. When you get to Luke 22, it's interesting because it shares that in the Upper Room, now you remember what's going on in the Upper Room. Jesus takes communion with the disciples and establishes it for the church and for Christians everywhere. Right? It's the night that he's betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane in a little bit. He's going to be crucified the next day. And it says in Luke 22 that the disciples that were with Jesus at the Last Supper were bickering amongst themselves about who was the greatest. Seriously? You read that, and what I get into sometimes is when I'm reading, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all sharing the same story. They all share, you know, it's from four different viewpoints, and, and they're sharing the story. I'm always wondering, what is the timeline on that? Because if you go to John's gospel, to this wonderful section of scripture that's several chapters called the Upper Room Discourse, in John chapter 13, it says that Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room. It says that Jesus grabbed a basin of water, took off his outer garment, and went around and washed all of the disciples' feet. And I always wonder, in the context of that situation, what was going on at the time? You know, he's washing the disciples' feet because they forgot? Because maybe they were arguing about who's the greatest amongst them? And so Jesus, as the leader and the humble servant, grabs the basin of water and starts washing the disciples' feet. It threw them off so much. Do you remember what Peter said? Peter's like, hey, Lord, you will not wash my dirty, stinking feet here. You're, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part of me. And then he was like, oh, well, wash my, my head and my, my whole body. Wash everything, Lord, because I want to be a part of you. But Jesus went around and washed the disciples' feet. And what I find is there's less discord and disharmony and combativeness around the basin. That when Christians are doing what God has called us to do in serving one another, in serving the kingdom, mission, and purpose, those churches don't have a tendency to bicker about the color of the robes or whether, whether their, their, their thing you know, that was their, their hill to die on got changed. They have a tendency to have more of a vertical focus and less of a horizontal focus because they're actually focusing their heart and their mind and their life on what God wants. Contentious servant just doesn't even go together, does it? You would say a humble servant. And when you devote yourself to doing good, as it says here in verse 14, it's hard to get focused and spun out on bickering around the basin. When you start serving people, it brings a spirit of harmony. This is so important to Jesus that in the upper room, in John's gospel, as you get to the end of the upper room discourse, Jesus prays 
In your subheading in your Bible there around John 17, John 18, it might say, uh, Jesus prays for the believers. And you know what he prays for? Unity. Unity of the body of Christ. Unity of those disciples. Unity of the apostles. Unity of Christians going into the future. He prays earnestly. I'm thinking, Jesus, there's a lot of things I'd be praying for right now. But Jesus said, I'm going to pray for unity. I'm going to pray for harmony amongst my church and amongst the believers. I am going to pray. He prays and he says, oh, Father, that they could be one as you and I are one. Do you hear that? You see, that's part of our maturing in Christ Jesus, folks, is that you and I would become one with Jesus just as Jesus is one with the Heavenly Father. We are called sons and daughters of Jesus. We're family and part of the family of God. And the gateway for you to be adopted into God's family was the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. As we end this series today, I want to leave you with this. What is your next step to following Christ Jesus? What is the one that maybe it's to forgive somebody and to let something go? What, wouldn't that be beautiful? Maybe it's to start serving in some capacity or some way you've never thought of before. Maybe you're the one that's just always in your head with foolish controversies and contentiousness and dissension. And maybe if you're really honest and you took a step back and you did an inventory of your life and your relationships right now, you're, you're thinking, man, Satan's been using me to try to stir some things in the church, in God's church. Folks, we're not here to beat you down. We're here to say, repent. Repent means to turn away from it and to go God's way. Because in doing so, you will have the best life. The life God intends for you to have and the life that you will enjoy the most. And spoiler alert, that life goes on, if you're in Christ Jesus, it goes on into eternity if you'll just love and accept Jesus and call him Lord. And if we as a church will just operate the church as God defined, do church God's way.